just the first 10 verses, though we'll be uh, referring to the whole of the passage again this week. So please look with me at Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And as we uh, look at this passage of Scripture, I remind us this is God's Word. Every word that God speaks is the truth. Every word that He speaks can be trusted. Every word that He speaks is given to us for our good, for our well-being. So hear the Word of God with, with that in mind. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, muttered, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have just found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Lord, we um, again thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. But again, Lord, we need for you to grant your spirit to us as well so that these words, uh, rather than just being words on a page, live for us. We need your help to that end. So come, Lord, by your spirit, open our eyes, plow up our hearts, and take this, your word, and press it into the fabric of our being. Lord, some of us know these parables as well as we know our own names. But Lord, may we hear afresh the wonderful truths that are present in these parables, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, what we're doing for for all of us who have been here as a sort of a reminder and for those of you who may be here for the first time what we're doing in these sermons is looking at these various encounters that Jesus uh, has with people whether an individual like the widow um, at Nain this woman who was a widow and who lost her son uh, or whether this encounter uh, between Jesus and these Pharisees and all of this is prompted by this question What kind of king is King Jesus? That's what got us started uh, back in February. What kind of king is King Jesus? Um, And um, there's a need, I think, uh, as we do this, and this is really what what is in my mind, uh, there's a need, uh, I think, for all of us to be reminded of our first love, to be taken back to our first love, to be reintroduced, if you will, week by week to Jesus, to knowing him, 
to being reminded of what he is like, to seeking him, to loving and delighting in him, to to recognizing that what is at the, the core and the heart of Christianity is relationship. There's theology involved in this. There is a code of conduct. There is ethical behavior. There's all that stuff, you know, as we've said. But what is at the center, what is at the core of all of this is Jesus, the person with whom I have relationship if I'm a Christian. And if I'm not a Christian, I need to understand. And then, boy, I tell you, if, if I could just press this one thing home, I'd want you to understand that Christianity is not about ideas in your head and it's not about right kinds of behavior and it's not about the proverbial quiver in the liver, <laughs> the experience, you know. It is about being the child of the God of heaven and earth the child of the God of heaven and earth, who is a real person, who is really there. And at least according to Jonathan Edwards, who is pretty highly regarded as a student of scripture and a theologian, is the whole purpose of the creation, that God might distribute upon the objects of his affection the same love which he has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he might love his creatures in the same way that he loves himself. That's what's at the heart of this, and that's why we're doing this. We're looking at these encounters that Jesus has just to sort of be reintroduced, if you will, to our first love. And here in Luke 15, Jesus is surrounded by these two groups of people. There's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They represent one group, and then there are are the tax collectors and the sinners who are drawn to Jesus and who surround Jesus. And the response of the first group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, is to grumble or to mutter about the fact that Jesus, who, who presents himself as a rabbi, who casts himself in the role of a rabbi, would surround himself with disreputable people. What an unthinkable thing. That a rabbi would do that. I mean, there are all kinds of fences and stuff that rabbis had erected around themselves and, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus is just seems to be completely ignorant of those fences and doesn't care about those fences and allows all of these disreputable people to associate with him. And in that setting, in that context, these parables really are a rebuke. It's Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And I suggested to you last week that there's a kind of a fourfold rebuke. Maybe it's fivefold, sixfold, sevenfold, tenfold. I don't know, you know, but I see four aspects to this rebuke. I think Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for forgetting who they are. Forgetting that they're, they're sons of this covenant relationship that God initiated. They forgot that. And they erect this standard of righteousness against which they measure everybody and everything else. They erect this standard of righteousness and they think that by conformity to that standard of righteousness, they've made themselves acceptable in the sight of God. They've somehow put God under obligation to like them better, love them more, engage them, relate to them. But we're going to see this again this morning. The point is that God took the initiative in the first place. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. The Pharisees forgot that. They forgot who they were. Secondly, they became, and this is part and parcel of the first, they became muddle-headed, 
about the basis of their relationship to God. They thought it was their own righteousness. And as a result of being forgetful and muddle-headed, they created divisions. They violated the very sense of what it is to be the people of God, the kind of thing that we confessed in our affirmation of faith. They violated that sense of unity by erecting this righteousness, believing that they had conformed to it and dismissing those who didn't conform to the standard that they had erected. It creates divisions. And then it creates a joylessness. These, these Pharisees were curmudgeons. They just were. And they were mean-spirited. And they were joyless. And they couldn't celebrate the prospect, the idea that disreputable folks would associate with Jesus. Couldn't handle it. So that's what we saw last week. Now, this week, as Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, it seems to me that what he's also doing is, is correcting a misunderstanding of what God is like. He's rebuking the Pharisees for their forgetfulness and all the rest. But he's also correcting a misunderstanding of what God is like. He is, in effect, showing us what God is really like. He's showing us God as he really is. And he's doing that in four ways. And, and in these things, we come to see what God is like, and we come to see what God incarnate is like, what Jesus is like. And I just want to mention these four things, encourage you to think about them, and as you read through the Gospels, see if you don't see these things being worked out in Jesus himself, who is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God in the world, God in the midst of us. So here are the four things. The first thing that you extract from these parables is Jesus seeks to show us God as he is. Here's the first thing. God is a seeking God. He is not a waiting God. He is a seeking God. He is not a waiting God. If you think about it, the Pharisees had in mind that God was a waiting God, right? He was waiting for them to erect their standard of righteousness, their code of conduct, their ideas in their heads, whatever it might be, so that God then, seeing their standard of righteousness, their code of conduct, their theological accuracy, would then respond to them. You see, that's a waiting God. A God who waits for us to get it right. And then when we get it right, He responds. But that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a seeking God. Verse 4, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. And I hope it's clear to us that in these parables... Jesus is describing God for us and how God relates to us. And he do, does it under these four figures of a shepherd and a woman and a father. Verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Does he not go after it? Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open car and go after the sheep that is lost? That's seeking, that's searching, that's pursuing. 
And there's a relentlessness about this pursuit. Verse 8, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. The commentators suggest that this, this ten coin thing represents the whole of this woman's life savings. She's lost a tenth of it. That's a big deal for a woman in this kind of a culture, this kind of a society, which is very patriarchal. For a woman to be at the center of this suggests that she is alone and all she has is these ten coins. And if she doesn't have these ten coins, she's at the mercy of life. And she loses one of these coins. It's something of value. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully for it until she finds it? God, thanks be to God, God is a seeking, searching God. And the Pharisees, again, had a God who was a waiting God. A God who was waiting for you to make the first move in his direction. But that's not the God of the Bible. You look all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture. I think the trajectory for this idea is established in the first chapter of the Bible after the fall. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Let me have you turn back there. You know what this, I trust, you know what this narrative presents to us. God has created everything. He has created it with splendor and beauty and glory. And he's blessed it. And it's a place of abundance. It's a place where his, his peace, his shalom is pervasive, where everything is harmonious and hangs together, where everything fits. But the man and the woman have violated the command of God. And the result of that is that they're plunged They're plunged and take everything with them into a condition of death. And the effect of that upon the man now, rather than being at peace, rather than experiencing tranquility, now he is afraid. That's the word that sort of characterizes what is going on here. He is afraid. He is afraid of things that go bump in the night and everything else along with it. His life now is characterized by fear. And here you read in Genesis 3, verse 8, the man and the woman have hidden themselves. They are naked. That, if, if you want to know, if you want an idea about what that nakedness has to do with, can I throw out a little tantalizer and a teaser and invite you to come tonight as we talk about the new heaven and the new earth and what it looks like for the man and the woman to be reclothed? Here they're naked and they're ashamed. And they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Sounds delightful, doesn't it? This is not the Lord out for a casual walk in the park. But just trust me, the force of the language is that he is searching and searching intently and he knows the ones he is searching for and looking for and those ones are Adam and Eve. And when he calls out to them 
and asks them where they are. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The reason for the question is not because God is ignorant of where they are. The reason for the question is that the man and the woman are, woman are ignorant of where they are. It isn't that God needs to know where they are. It's that the man and the woman need to know where they are and what they need. And God calls them. He initiates. He comes with intention. He summons them. He calls them. He seeks them. And as he seeks them, he seeks for them that they would understand where they are and what their need is. And the conclusion of the story is that he does not destroy them, which you might expect. Here come to judge. The judge is coming. But when the judge comes, the judge does not destroy. He seeks the man and the woman to call them out of their darkness and out of their hiding place and out of their fear so that he might strip them of their leaves, strip them of their attempts to cover their nakedness. And so that he, in verse 21 of chapter 3, might clothe them with garments of skin. He takes the initiative. And I tell you in the third chapter of Genesis, the trajectory is set for what God is going to do to rescue a people, strip them naked of their own righteousness, and clothe them in garments that He will provide. Not the blood of bulls and goats or some other animal that would have been sacrificed in Genesis 3 so that the man and the woman could be clothed in skins. But the blood of his son, who would come as the perfect sacrifice, shedding his blood, that they might be cleansed, securing a righteousness that they might be clothed. It's God who takes the initiative. He never waits. He always seeks. Look at Abraham. Think of Abraham. It is God who speaks to Abraham. It is God who calls Abraham out of his darkness in Ur of the Chaldees. It is God who leads him, who draws him, who brings him to himself, who makes promises to him, who makes provision that those promises be fulfilled, who secures for him a place, a promised land that they might have a relationship. Look at Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. I'll just mention all of these and encourage you to look at them in the week to come. Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. As God reminds Israel where she has come from, He says, I brought you to Myself. I bore you up on eagles' wings. I brought you to Myself. I went into Egypt through Moses. And by a display of my power, I brought you to myself. Folks, these stories, these records of God's redeeming acts in history are there to show us, to teach us, to instruct us about what God is like. I brought you up to myself that you might be for me a treasured possession.
So beginning very early in the first moments after the fall and continuing across the whole of the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that God is a seeking God and initiating God. Let me, let me just try to apply this a little bit. Do you ever think to yourself, do you ever wonder, do you ever stop and reflect upon the fact that you are a Christian at all? And do you ever ask yourself, why? Why am I a Christian at all? How do I account for this? How do I account for the fact that I have been saved? Not that people are saved, but that I have been saved. The only answer that I can find, beginning in Genesis 3 and working all the way through the rest of the Bible, the only answer I can find to the question, why am I a Christian at all, is that God sought me. And what he seeks, he finds. And what he finds, he saves. There's a hymn that we sing. It's actually to the same tune that we sang, The King of Love, My Shepherd Is, too. And it's the hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. Here is some of the text. Why was I made to hear your voice? and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew me in, else I would still refuse to taste and perish in my sin. How do you account for the fact that you're a Christian today? It is because God sought you And what God seeks, he finds. And what God finds, he saves. And he saves to the uttermost. Several months ago, I was preaching from John 17. And I encouraged you in that sermon. And I've encouraged people to do this since. I've encouraged you to do what comes naturally to you. I encouraged you to be a narcissist. I encouraged you to think about yourself and forget about the rest of the world and just camp on this idea that you have been loved with an everlasting love and that God has come into the world to seek you and what he seeks, he finds, and what he finds, he saves. And I encouraged you to think of Cinderella who finds herself on the ash heap with no hope. And when the prince comes to Cinderella and tells Cinderella that he wants for Cinderella to be his queen, she doesn't say, stop, O prince. What about my stepsisters? She is simply overcome by the fact that she is the one whom the prince delights in and loves and wants for his queen. My friends, God is a seeking God, and if he were not, you would not be a Christian today. But because he is, and because he finds what he seeks and saves what he finds, 
you have an answer to the question, why am I a Christian at all? So that's the first thing. God is a seeking God. And the second thing is that he is a compassionate God, not a frowning God. He is a compassionate God, not a frowning God. He's a seeking God, not a waiting God. He is a compassionate God, not a frowning God. He is filled with compassion, full of compassion, overflowing with compassion, a fountain of of compassion. What is compassion? Well, I really do think to understand compassion, which you see in verse 20 of this parable, when the father sees the son at a distance, at a long way off, he felt compassion for him and ran to him and embraced him. What is compassion? Well, I do think in order to understand compassion, you have to understand love. And I went back to one of those stuffy old Princeton theologians, Charles Hodge, again, to get somebody's definition of love, somebody's attempt to summarize and articulate what love is. We know what love is, don't we? And yet we don't know what love is. When, when my kids were little, especially my middle daughter for some reason, I would ask her at bedtime. I'd, I'd put my arms around her and she'd have her arms around me and I'd say, have you figured out what it is yet? She'd say, what? And I said, love. Have you figured out what it is? It's a sublime thing. It's a transcendent thing. It's a thing that you try to use words to describe, but you know that the words fall short of what love is. And yet Charles Hodge makes a stab at it, and he uses three words in an attempt to describe what love is. He uses the word complacency, and he uses the word desire, and he uses the word delight. Complacency, desire, and delight. What does that look like? Let me give you another picture. I think I've shared this before. When my oldest daughter was finished with college, she came home to live with us. And sometimes she'd come home after a long day at work and maybe having dinner with somebody, and it would be fairly late. Barb and I would be in bed. We'd be reading, you know, we'd be kind of falling asleep, and Katie would knock on the door and she'd come in and she'd get in bed right between us and just rest. What do you, what do you feel when your 23, 24-year-old daughter comes home and, and wants to rest? in your presence. That's complacency. That is that sense of rest and delight and desire. And Hodge also says that love to be love must include feeling. If it doesn't include feeling, it isn't real love. Again, this is Charles Hodge. This is not some sentimental, pop, pulp Christian writer. This is Charles Hodge thinking deeply about the nature of love, reflecting on the teaching of Scripture. And it includes feeling. It involves feeling. 
and complacency, this sense of rest and delight and desire, the desire to possess the thing that is delighted in so that the rest might be known, the complacency might be experienced. What does compassion have to do with that? When you love something in that way and you see the object of your love in distress, what does it do to you? It produces compassion. It produces a deep sense of desire to relieve the distress of the one you love. And so here's how you think about love and compassion and grace. Love is the complacent delight and desire for the object of love. Compassion is the sense of distress that the lover feels toward the one loved when the one loved is experiencing distress. And grace moves to relieve the distress. And the father who loved his son felt compassion because the object of his desire was distressed and he ran to embrace him and relieve him of his distress. God is a compassionate God. He loves deeply. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that his love is high and deep and wide and long. He is saying to us it is unfathomable. It is incomprehensible. It can't be comprehended. And God is touched, the scriptures teach us, by the feeling of our infirmities. So God is a seeking God and he is a seeking God because he's a compassionate God. He pursues the objects of his affection and love. And as we've said, he finds what he seeks and he saves what he finds all as an outward expression of, a manifestation of, this massive, incomprehensible love with which he loves his beloved. Think of it this way. Boy, I wish I could talk about this for an hour. God loves within himself before he loves away from himself. And the Father finds in the Son an object commensurate with, large enough for this incomprehensible love and he fixes that incomprehensible love on his son and finds delight in his son and the son reciprocates and loves the father back and there is a love affair that exists between the father and the son and here's the thing when the father and the son and the holy spirit turn that infinite love out away from themselves they love created objects with the same love with which they love Themselves. I can't comprehend that. But that's the truth, my friends. And it is that love with which God loves the objects of his affection outside of himself. Undeserving people like you and me. So God is a seeking God. He's not a waiting God. God is a compassionate God. 
God is also a lavish God, not a stingy God. He is a lavish God, not a stingy God. Look at the Father's actions in the parable. He comes to the Son with complete forgiveness and restoration. You know, the Son has gotten it twisted in his own brain about how this system works. Again, this is something that would be so much fun to explore and plumb and contemplate and and tease out. The Son grew up in this household. The Son knows something of the love of this Father. And frankly, I'm convinced that it is his knowledge of the love of the Father, again, the Father initiating with the Son, loving the Son, loving Him relentlessly, pursuing Him relentlessly. It is that incomprehensible love that in fact turns the Son away from His foolishness and sends Him back home. But somewhere between those pigsties and home, He got convoluted in His reasoning and He forgot that He was a Son and concluded the best thing for Him to do was do something that would warrant the Father loving him again. And so he became a Pharisee in his own way. Make me a servant. That's what I'll say. Make me a servant. I'll be a servant so that by being a servant, I can work my way back into the Father's good graces. But you see, the Father will have none of it. The father will have none of it. He pays no attention to the words when the son comes to the father and says, I've sinned against heaven and you. True enough. We'll look at that next week. I've sinned against heaven and you make me as one of your hired servants. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father will not hear it. He will have none of it. He is his son. And with complete forgiveness, he restores him to his status. The robe is a robe, a mark of distinction. The ring signifies the family's authority. He restores the full measure of his own authority to the son. The son comes back probably barefoot. The father puts sandals on his feet. Sandals are the mark of a free man. Bare feet and shoes are marks of a slave. But sandals are the mark of a free man. And then he does the unthinkable thing, the thing that so offends the elder brother. He calls for the fatted calf to be slaughtered, the special calf. Veal cutlets to be served up in celebration of the return of the Son. And there is singing and there is dancing. And the Father is simply lavish in the outpouring of forgiveness and restoration. Ever think to yourself, this time I've gone too far. This time, you know, it was one thing for me to run home to the Father when I first became a Christian. And and maybe it was another thing for me to run home to the Father after I had been stupid as a two-year-old Christian or a five-year-old Christian. But I'm a 35-year-old Christian. And this time I've just gone too far. 
I have exhausted the kindness of the Father and there won't be any more for me. Jonathan Edwards struggled with that. I believe he did. And the reason I believe he struggled with that is because he preached a sermon from Psalm 25, verse 11. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity because it is great. See, your tendency and mine is to think, I've done it again. I've crossed the line and this time I've exhausted God's patience and I have exhausted his capacity to be lavish in forgiveness and restoration. That's my tendency. My tendency is to think that it is my sin that disqualifies me from going to the only one who can deal with my sin. And I'm convinced that Jonathan Edwards dealt with that very question because in preaching this sermon from Psalm 25 Verse 11, he argues basically this. Your sin, your foolishness and your perversity are precisely the ground and the basis upon which you make your appeal to the Father. That yet again, out of this infinite storehouse of forgiveness, he might lavish upon you forgiveness and restoration. I'll get you the reference if you want to read it. It is a tonic for the soul. The Father's capacity for forgiveness is commensurate with his capacity for love and neither can be exhausted. And so the Father, God, in addition to being a seeking God, in addition to being, what did I say the second thing was? <laughs> a compassionate God. He is a lavish God. And then finally, he is a rejoicing God. He's not a muttering, complaining God like the Pharisees. But he is a rejoicing God. We made this point last week that it is in, it's true in each of these three parables strung together that they end with rejoicing. It's a striking thing that that is the common recurring thread in the three parables. Compassion is not exactly present in each of the three. Seeking is not exactly present in each of the three. Being lavish, the outpouring of forgiveness and restoration is not exactly present in all three of the parables, but the one thing that is present in all three of the parables is rejoicing. And I told you last week, just to observe the progression, that in the first parable, there is rejoicing in heaven. In the second parable, there is rejoicing in the presence of of the angels. I pointed this out to you. It's important, I think. It probably is the case that the angels are rejoicing, but the text doesn't say that the angels are rejoicing. The text says there is someone in the presence of the angels who is rejoicing, and that one rejoicing in the presence of the angels is God himself. And that is worked out in the very specific 
relational way that it's worked out in the third parable as the father rejoices to see the son brought back home. What is God like? What kind of image do you have in your head of God? I know we're not supposed to create images. I know we're not supposed to fabricate images in our minds and our imaginations or with wood or stone or anything else, but every single one of us has a picture in his or her mind of what God looks like. What do you see on the face of the God of heaven and earth? Do you see the face of a seeking God? of an infinitely compassionate God, of a lavish God, and of a God who rejoices when you give up your foolishness and perversity and turn back home to him. Let's pray together. Lord, make our hearts glad as I believe you made the heart of Jonathan Edwards glad, as I believe you made the heart of Martin Luther glad, as I believe you've made the heart of the Apostle Paul glad, the prospect that sinners like us could be so marvelously received by such a great, merciful, compassionate, loving, seeking, forgiving, rejoicing God. Lord, recast our understanding of what you are like. We pray that you might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's sing number 497. Let's sing, I trust with a, with a sense of what this God is like. I need thee, precious Jesus. I know who I am. But even in view of who I am, as we sing this, may God give us grace to see God as he is. Let's stand.